It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. If you're at all familiar with the Egyptian pyramids, then you no doubt are aware of what an engineering marvel they are. Consider that they were built around 2500 BC. The largest stands 449 feet tall, weighs 6.5 million tons, and covers 13 acres. But exactly how were they built? Stephen Blakely has studied its construction extensively and has formed a theory, the use of what he calls an Egyptian pulley. He has shown the materials to build the pulley, the, the pulley were in use 4,500 years ago and surmised it could handle the 51 degree incline. To test his theory, Stephen and Greg Blakely directed a team of four mechanical engineering students at the University of Illinois to test their hypothesis. The project culminated in a full-scale demonstration in Alton, Illinois on April 15, 2013 and successfully proved that the theory was plausible. The brains behind the experiment, Stephen Blakely is our guest, a 1969 graduate of Illinois with a degree in mechanical engineering. He presented his findings at an archaeological conference at the University of Oxford in 2014. Stephen Blakely, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Well, first off, uh, just uh, we all like to start with a little background. How did you become interested, involved in, in trying to, to figure out uh, this uh, problem that people have studied for generations? Well, actually, it, it, it started very early. Um, I saw a 1955 movie called Land of the Pharaohs, a highly fictionalized account of how the Great Pyramid was built. But as part of that, they had a sort of a dramatic uh, technological gimmick or technique in which uh, stones were placed on sand and then when they wanted the stones to be lowered they would break clay seals at the end of the near the end of the movie it, it was it was sort of an indelible vision in, in my mind and that just started my you know interest also uh, I being an engineering early on and uh, kind of a do-it-yourselfer I, I just never forgot that. It always captivated me. Then in high school, um, so I think that was in my subconscious for years early on. In high school, I, I remember a problem that was posed to me by a physics professor or teacher, and it, it should have been solved using a conventional pulley system, but I used a, what I call a rope ramp with just one pulley, and he gave me a zero for the answer. <laughs> but actually, <laughs> it would have worked. And later I actually developed this rope ramp, which was the, sort of the precursor to the pulley because I needed a pulley in, the, in this rope ramp idea, which turned out to be not real practical, but the pulley did. So it started early on. And for the last 10 years, I've been fairly actively pursuing uh, this through, it, as you noted, full-scale experiments. So uh, this, no doubt, spawned your interest in mechanical engineering. Just talk about briefly your experience at the University of Illinois uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yes, uh, it started uh, certainly with uh, tearing turn apart like old clocks and looking at the Egyptian and at the Great Pyramid. And then, they, of course, the Soviets launched the Sputnik. I was part of that era that got very interested in science and technology. Uh, Fortunately, uh, was accepted by the University of Illinois Mechanical Engineering, then also uh, participated in the old McDonnell Aircraft, now Boeing. They had a co-op student program, and that was uh, very helpful. 
So, in fact, that's where I had the fortune to meet my current business partner, Dr. Lee Ray, in, in which uh, we're involved in uh, medical technology, a medical technology company. So, yes, it started back in the 60s, uh, big time with McDonnell Aircraft, and then uh, my activities there, of course, and studies at, in mechanical engineering, which were just so, so fundamental, so important to me. I owe so much to the university for that. So you mentioned you've, you've really started extensive, uh, you know, research or whatever, uh, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Just talk about what that was and, and what led you to. to okay. Uh, um, as you probably know, it's not difficult to see programs. I like to watch documentaries on TV about how uh, the pyramids may have been built, uh, various theories, including ones about uh, outer space aliens, which ironically is on the History Channel. They probably belong to Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> but, so there is, of course, great deal of public interest in general, and I, you know, it's easy to access, but I then actively started a, a good, a sizable library, do a lot of reading, a lot of ultimately thinking, and it, it basic, basically, I guess, how any idea gel, gels in your mind subconsciously from all those literally decades, I think, of it, of it sort of uh, germinating in there. I came up with this first idea, which was sort of like a ski lift, a rope ramp idea, which turned out to be it was actually tested. I tested it. My nephew, Greg Brakeley, his, his little farm down in Southern Illinois. And although we actually showed that it could work, it was, it was really somewhat impractical. But as part of that system, I needed a simple pulley. So basically, in an instant, I designed this pulley, which is simply, uh, from an engineering standpoint, an open journal bearing with a groove in it. it it's, it's relatively trivial. And after a while, I realized that that was a much better idea. Uh, so I started focusing on just a pulley and then using the pulley to, with the concept of pulling up the pyramid stones during the construction of the pyramid itself, using the side of the pyramid. And calculations show that based upon the uh, number of pullers, the amount of space on the pop, top of the pulley, that with uh, approximately eight to 10 pulleys, it was possible to meet the really the critical challenge of lifting one stone every three to five minutes for 30 years. That's really the, the real challenge. Mm -hmm. And the use of eight to 10 pulleys uh, would do that. That is, if you assume that it takes about 20 minutes or a half hour per one stone to lift, which is reasonable if you use 10 pulleys, you can divide that number by 10. So in the order of three minutes, uh, of course, there's all this further experiments needed to be needs to be done to you know further flesh that wow. out certainly it's the calculations and the full-scale experiment demonstrate that based upon the uh, it, the uh, actual recorded data so why don't you we back up a little bit and just talk about what life was like there um, um, how big the pyramids were built why they were built um, and and, and uh, go from there okay good question um, a lot, of course, is known about it. What isn't known is how they were built. But uh, they were, most Egyptologists believe they were essentially a tomb for the pharaoh, Pharaoh Khufu. And basically, he wanted to make a statement. Uh, uh, the largest uh, object in the world for, say, over 4,000 years. Uh, 
it was the more you look at the Great Pyramid, and Egyptologists will tell you this too, the more one is impressed and just totally blown away by the achievement to the point where I guess you can see why some people believe aliens, they needed help from their gods. <laughs> but the, the, the inside of the pyramid, of which only a portion is known, obviously, because uh, it, it's not been deconstructed, but from what is known, uh, it's it's really an incredible achievement, such as the great uh, the great hallway in there. The the there are some very large stones that uh, support the roof of the king's chamber, like the 50 tons. I focused on the lifting of the 2.3 million stones that average around four to five thousand pounds, but do decrease in weight as the pyramid goes up in height. Uh, again. Uh, it's interesting that even during this time period, uh, they were certainly documented simple and mundane activities such as how to make baked bread and how to brew beer, but undoubtedly they were cognizant that this was just the most incredible engineering achievement, but they left no evidence. And some, some, certainly the question is why is that? Uh, my particular belief, it was probably a combination of wanting to keep the trade secrets of how it was built, so competing cultures, uh, different countries wouldn't repeat it. But I think maybe the ultimate answer is that um, they wanted people who came, let's say, decades later to be so impressed that they believed that the Pharaoh actually had help from his gods uh, to do this because he was considered a god. And if you think that today on the History Channel, Essentially, that's what these programs are promoting with the aliens indicating that you need help. The only way this could have been done was with the help of the gods. And I think that's what the Pharaoh wanted to mm -hmm. uh, achieve. But during that time period, certainly, as you noted, uh, the, uh, and that was called the Old Kingdom. At that time, the Egyptians had significant skills in stone and granite sculpting, and copper casting. They understood log rollers. They understood basically all the elements of what I contend is what I call the Egyptian pulley. And, you know, there, there's also substantial evidence of that also. Well, in addition to it being a marvel, the fact that it, it still stands. Yes. Um, 4,500 years later, what, why do you think it stood the test of storms and weather and well, certainly, uh, and I'm not an expert here, but uh, the fortunately being in the Egyptian desert, which uh, has preserved uh, even, for instance, uh, adjacent to the Great Pyramid itself, was is a sort of a disassembled boat, a solar boat that the uh, pharaoh was going to use to get to the to the Netherlands there, and it was discovered in the early 50s, disassembled. The wood was intact, the rope was intact, so the dry desert, the only problem with the desert really in terms of degradation or the, is the, the sand, the blowing sand is very abrasive. But um, the actually, the Great Pyramid, the outer finish stones have all been scavenged. They're, they're gone, and uh, that may have actually helped uh, uh, preserve it for a while. Some of those finish stones are in the British Museum. I've, uh, I've observed them, and indeed, the the outer surface uh, of those finished stones that were, of which the Great Pyramid was completely covered in, were very smooth, and it's it's pretty well a given that the pyramid was probably painted a, a bright colors, and there may have been a uh, such as a gold small pyramid point right at the top. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it would answer your question, the desert environment, pretty much. Okay. Well, let's get into your uh, theory. I think you have a, kind of a three-part uh, hypothesis, whatever, that this has to be met, this has yeah. to be met. This, so uh, I'll let you explain okay. what those are and then uh, how you went about to try to, try to prove that, those, that this uh, theory that you have come up with would work on all three levels. Okay, and, it, it's, and this is the, the three hurdles that in my mind need to be met to uh, really prove that this solution that anyone would offer and what I've offered could have been, if not, and may have been used in fact. Uh, the first hurdle would be what I call it, that it's technologically and culturally plausible. I'll talk about that in a second. The, the second hurdle is a full scale experiment to demonstrate the theory and lastly supporting direct evidence that indeed the great uh, old kingdom egyptians used this to to make the great pyramid the, in a lot of the the research in the library i collected and uh, and actually the work i've done in going to the british museum and online museums it's very very clear that the old kingdom egyptians had certainly had the capability to do tremendous intricate work in hard, hard materials as granite, limestone, obviously wood. They were, uh, they were still in the Bronze Age, but they were very capable of casting and farming and polishing copper. Uh, they, they had either direct or indirect access through importing, importing oils and resins and woods from adjacent areas. The, the, the sculptures and other things that are now in the museums fully prove that, in fact, the Old Kingdom is considered sort of the high point of the ability of the Egyptians to, to sculpt stone. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt that they could have made a simple, what I call a simple cylinder and cradle and had all the other capabilities. Uh, so that was the first trouble. Second is a full-scale experiment of this uh, Egypt, what I call Egyptian pulley, which is simply uh, a cylinder with a rope groove uh, that rotates in an open cradle, what an engineer might call a journal bearing with a rope groove. Uh, this was, with, again, you noted, and you might want to talk about it a little bit later, but with the help of the students at the University of Illinois, this senior project I sponsored, they, they designed with my guidance uh, a, uh, and using rather complex computer analysis, of course, the Egyptians didn't have finite element analysis. They designed this to meet the goal of lifting a 5,000 pound weight up a 52 degree incline, which is the side of the incline of the Great Pyramid. And also to have this fabricated and also, again, to do a full scale test. And indeed, they did a tremendous job there uh, of accomplishing this. And the, the final design was a limestone uh, pulley, Egyptian pulley, that was approximately 12 inches diameter that, that had a rope groove. What's unique about this rather simple pulley, and indeed it is a pulley because it will uh, allow the uh, rope to change directions without abrading the rope and maintaining the cross-sectional integrity. So they, they did a superb job of that. And it was designed again to be able to sustain that 5,000 pound weight. This was shown through calculations and then ultimately shown through the actual experiment at a uh, rope rigging uh, company in Alton, Illinois, uh, in which we have video. And also 
that test was digitally, uh, there was digital data recorded through a digital load cell transmitting to a laptop. So we've got the actual printout that indeed proves the, of, the, of the load that was sustained by the rope. And then lastly, uh, I wanted to talk briefly about the supporting evidence. That was the last really area that I have been focusing on recently, and I've not really had time to put a tremendous amount of effort into it. But uh, certainly the uh, research is that shows that the old kingdom Egyptians understood rotating cylinders, could easily make objects with rope grooves. But the really significant evidence that the great uh, the Old Kingdom Egyptians understood all the elements of Egyptian pulley is actually in the Great Pyramid itself. A lot of people don't know, but there is a mechanism in there, sort of a primitive machine that will was intended to foil tomb robbers. Well, tomb robbers always got around all these devices, so they. But if you go and examine this uh, mechanism. Now, it really is based on the use of the elements of an Egyptian pulley because the stone cradles, of which there are six of them, that are exactly like the design that I use, are in the Great Pyramid. These were intended to support uh, simple log beams that would rotate in these uh, cradles, not unlike, uh, exactly, in fact, like the Egyptian pulley works. The only difference is the rope in that case is, was suspended in the middle of this beam, this simply supported beam based upon their design. It was, it was only used really once, that is to lift the stone and then to drop it when it was ready to be dropped to, so that that sealed the chamber to the Great Pyramid. But those elements, if you look at those, are exactly uh, the elements that are used uh, in this Egyptian pulley. Uh, also, there was a, what I call, what's called a rope roll that was found near the step pyramid, which predated the Great Pyramid by about 100 years. And this is called a rope roll. It was obvious that it was intended to, to roll in a roller, and it has a rope groove in it. Again, for all intents and purposes, a small wooden uh, Egyptian pulley. So, I, I, and again, I would say this, I don't contend that the, Egyptian, the Egyptians used just one mechanism to build the Great Pyramid. I believe undoubtedly, based upon the challenge at hand, whether it was one large stone to be moved or many to be moved, they would design, they would use a different mechanism. I will contend this though, that in the challenge of moving 2.3 million stones at the rate of one stone every three to five minutes, efficiency to the Old Kingdom Egyptians, therefore, was really would be very important, and it would be worthwhile for them to invest and design a simple machine uh, such as uh, this Egyptian pulley. Uh, very, there's little doubt in my mind that they either use this or something like it to accomplish the, the task at hand. Well, it would have to be something that couldn't be interrupted. Uh, Correct. If, well, if the, you're talking the, about the, this, it would take them approximately 30 years. Right. The, the advantage, again, of, of using this technique as I proposed it is, uh, and, and again, most other theorists, they're simply that. They're, they have theories they really haven't demonstrated. But again, the, the real challenge is how do you move one of these stones every three to five minutes? The, again, the advantage of using, say, eight to ten pulleys, if one of them fails, it, it's not critical. But on many of these other theories, if you have a failure in the middle of a ramp, you're going to be down maybe for days. Uh, the other thing to note, which hardly any theorists even talk about, is the criticality of the rope. Uh, 
the rope that was used was of course handmade. It was made out of material called halfa grass. The today's modern uh, rope that's that's fiber based is uh, called Manila rope, and it is machine made out of much stronger fibers. It's very clear to me from an engineering standpoint that this halfa grass rope that they used was was much more fragile, and in a sense, the weak link. In, in, in any system that they use, and rope would have been used extensively in any systems there, but there's no engineering data that exists on this rope. So what I've done, I'm in the process of developing this engineering data and having rope made from half a grass uh, plant fibers, uh, and that will be published. But the advantage of a pulley, uh, and believe me, I do believe they, and many experts would agree, they needed, it badly needed a pulley to accomplish many of their stone lifting uh, challenges. The rope, you really do not want to, to deal with rope breaking all the time. And a true pulley, as the Egyptian pulley does, literally protects the rope as it rotates with the cylinder and it maintains the cross-sectional integrity under very heavy loads. If uh, the cross-sectional integrity is compromised, uh, the rope will be breaking all the time. They have plenty of people, the, the, uh, a device like this Egyptian pulley was very robust, uh, but the rope, not so much. Uh, and again, although, although this pulley was designed out of limestone and fabricated, the, the test pulley, that was for a couple of reasons. One is I think it was a material they likely would have used because it's relatively easy to fabricate. But for the, in the case of the mechanical engineering students project it was also cost effective. But had the old kingdom Egyptians made that pulley out of granite or copper, uh, the uh, computer calculations show that it easily could have withstood 20 to 30,000 pounds of rope tension. In fact, much more than probably any rope that they had would have sustained. Right. So take me back just a little bit of the process of you coming up, because obviously before you want to have students do this experiment, you had to feel pretty confident in your numbers and engineering. Um, talk about the process of coming up with yes. all that. Oh, uh, and to go into a little detail there, uh, right. I, I certainly did do what I call, uh, well, more than back the envelope calculations that the material would work. The, the key reason that the uh, Egyptians couldn't use a conventional pulley with, uh, to, to lift large loads, but they were still in the Bronze Age. And a, a pulley is composed of three components. The axle is a critical component there. They simply couldn't have made a strong uh, conventional pulley. However, this Egyptian pulley is designed to take a, essentially only compressive loads, and they had compressive, high compressive load materials in the form of limestone, granite, and copper. So those calculations were actually fairly simple, although the students' uh, finite element analysis was much more sophisticated and confirmed it. But my back, the envelope calculation showed that it shouldn't be a problem to uh, uh, design and fabricate a robust pulley. But I also then did have a small granite uh, Egyptian pulley fabricated, uh, and it was about, it's about, I still have it, it's about four inches in diameter, and I wanted to use that as the first step to prove it, and we, it's a little bit of a funny story, but my nephew has a farm down in southern Illinois, and we, uh, has, and had a hillside that was not quite 52 degrees, but we used the pulley, and we used his uh, farm tractor, large Don Deere tractor, 
to pull up a Toyota truck up the hill. So it pulled up. A, so that, and it, and again, it functioned perfectly. We had, uh, uh, my, my brother, the joke was I put my brother in a truck because when it failed, you know, he's older and, you know, maybe expendable, but, uh, so, but he was in the truck in case the rope did break and could apply the brakes. But, uh, the, his nephew, uh, pulled the truck up, using Egyptian pulley up this incline. And we had video again showing the key thing, the two elements to show that a pulley works was indeed the, the cylinder rotates and the rope did not slip and it protected the rope. So that was the interim prototype. And that was made of granite, which is a very strong material. I was very confident that that wouldn't break. Then I passed uh, really that information along and uh, design, again, this is a very simple design, and that's why we engineers love simplicity. It's an elegant design, so it was not difficult for the engineering students to start with that and then uh, finalize it and, and do some really, I think, some neat things. They, they did a great job in, in, in designing the rope groove. The rope groove itself, you don't want the rope to rotate, so it it's, it's, uh, has a high friction coefficient in there. And they used olive oil uh, as the lubricant. Again, all these materials were available to the, uh, to the ancient Egyptians. I, uh, I sponsored that in the sense that this was a senior engineering project, and uh, I gave them guidance on what the goal was, but I didn't get into the detailed designs. That was not the purpose, but they, they used all their tremendous engineering skills. And again, the, this uh, finite element analysis program uh, but all said and done, I can tell you this from a lifetime experience, engineering prototypes never work the first time. Right. This one did. And the wow. reason is, is because it was so simple. And uh, we, I was elated when it did because I, things usually don't work well the very first prototype. Well, they had to have the correct materials, right? So did they, how, how did they go about fabricating the, the rope? Okay. Right. Uh, what we what we did, and with my help, uh, we located limestone fabricators in the Midwest. So this again, it, we decided for uh, both mainly cost purposes, but also I think the Egyptians likely would have used it for the same reasons. Limestone's a relatively strong material, easy for the old kings and Egyptians to fabricate. So we used that, and then we they designed the. Uh, the cylinder in what's called cradle. We had actually had them fabricated at two different limestone fabricators. The cylinder was fabricated in Indiana. There's a lot of great limestone, high quality limestone. But again, the old kingdom Egyptians had high quality limestone called Tura limestone. And that was used for the finished stones. So uh, those were the uh, limestone fabricators uh, uh, fabricated this based upon the students' uh, drawings, engineered drawings. And then uh, the last thing that needed to be done was to put in the rope groove. Uh, the limestone fabricators didn't do that. We used a local company. Uh, I can't remember what town it was in, close to Champagne there. And if I recall, they used an abrasive, sort of an abrasive jet to create the, the rope groove. And fortunately, uh, all these companies met our expectation. They did a fantastic job of meeting the design, in, including the rope groove. Uh, again, this was something the old king Egyptians readily could have done. And then uh, we used, another thing we did in the case of limestone, although the limestone was very smooth, it's somewhat porous. 
And if you want to put a lubricant such as olive oil on it, it's, it's generally just going to be somewhat absorbed into the surface. So what, what I recommended was the use of a, a simple resin or shellac. Again, this was something readily available and used by the Old Kingdom Egyptians. So it's essentially like a coating, a, a hard coating that we put or the students put on both the cylinder and the cradle where the olive oil was going to uh, be applied. Again, not in the rope groove. You don't want the rope to slip. And so that was successful. It, 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 when they did that and put the olive oil, you could just turn this pulley by, by your hand. Uh, oh. uh, it, it, the pulley itself, the cylinder weighs, both components weighed about 70 pounds. You might say that seems like a lot when you want to rotate it with a rope, but when you're, when you're driven by essentially rope tension close to 5,000 pounds, that's trivial. And uh, you're going to recover that energy anyway because it, it's really acting like a flywheel. So it it it's very it was very easy to rotate the the cylinder. In fact, on the granite uh, one I was telling you about earlier, you could you can spin that without even lubrication. So it's it uh, so the axle the the pulley the Egyptian pulley is made of two components, where a conventional pulley is made of three, and the uh, the, the cylinder itself is really combines two of the components in, in a conventional pulley. That is the axle and the sheave are combined into one. And is, now instead of having a small diameter axle that you'd have in a conventional pulley, you've got an axle that's 12 inches in diameter taking a compressive load. That's why it's so strong. Uh -huh. And uh, actually it's very well suited for the, the purpose and the, that I intended it for, that is to place it on the edge of the pyramid in a construction and to uh, pull up the stones, it, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it turns out, I mean, I think I was, I don't know what the word would be, fortunate, but uh, a good brainstorm, it really works well for the purpose. Um, however, people might ask, well, why don't we use an Egyptian pulley today? Well, the Egyptian pulley, to lift that 5,000 pounds, is going to weigh about 130 pounds, where you could go out and purchase a very strong conventional pulley uh, let's say 12 inches diameter, the axle is going to only be about an inch in diameter. It would weigh maybe five pounds. However, there are some advantages to the Egyptian pulley because from a foundation standpoint, you can just set it on the foundation. You don't have any other kind of support needed. There had to been some excitement for everybody that was involved. Uh, oh, uh, the, the first successful test there that, that was done, uh, yes, the students were were yelling and screaming and I was I can tell you I was I was thrilled well there is a take take us through that day because uh, you know there had to be some anticipation right will it work as you said that uh, a lot of times this doesn't work first first time out of the gate but uh, well again what, what happened was this I left this project in the hands of the students and as the semester was coming to an end, I put a little pressure on them to indicate we have to have a full-scale experiment. And they understood that. And fortunately, an old family friends in Alton Markell, who owned Markell Rope and Rigging, offered to help in doing the test. And I gave them that information and essentially just let them go with it. What actually happened was I actually was not there at the test itself, which was videotaped. The four students were. And... They went down uh, in one day and took the pulley down there and set it up. And I think the whole test they told me and set up only took about two to three hours. And uh, again, uh, for that experiment to work the first time, uh, 
would, I'd say the odds were heavily against it just from a standpoint of things typically don't go well the first time. But however, I felt the pulley itself was going to be strong enough, but you never know. Uh, fortunately, in a way, I didn't know that they were actually going to do the test that day. And I heard about it. They told me right after it was successful. Otherwise, I probably would have had a, had a kitten had I known that. And <laughs> I, had I been there, I would have been you know, it probably just as well I wasn't. I hope, you know, hopefully it may have not, but it may have interfered with something. But the students ended up, you know, they, the, the mission was accomplished. And yes, I, I was thrilled. And uh, with the help of uh, the people at Markow Rope and Rigging, they used an industrial tractor for the pull for safety reasons. Uh, but yes, and uh, we, we, as I mentioned, it was fully instrumented. We've got the recorded data. We had a, uh, a digital load cell right in line with the pull rope. And that was transmitting to a laptop that the students had. So in that sense, unlike the Egyptians who didn't have digital load cells and didn't have computer FEA analysis, the students had that and used it. But ultimately, the proof is in the pudding there, and it it, it worked the first time. So I, I was it was it was unbelievable from that standpoint, and I was certainly thrilled. And uh, and from that, I think you mentioned uh, ultimately put all those results into a proposal for an organization, XART, which is an experimental archaeology organization, and they accepted that abstract for a paper to prevent it to be presented at the University of Oxford, which was the, re the results, well, the, the basic design, and also specifically the successful test. Well, I was going to ask, just talk about the reaction of of the experts, I mean, obviously, this is one of the, the the marvels that I'm sure continues to be studied. What you know, what was the, what were the feedback you know uh, that you got from that? Uh, I was I tried not to be intimidated. I think I did a pretty good job. But the this conference was composed of essentially all uh, archaeologists, PhDs from around most a lot of it, uh, the organization is European based, but certainly people from Oxford, it was sponsored by Oxford and Exart, the experimental archeology span group, about 80 people at this organization and um, which in itself is kind of fascinating that kind of experiments they get involved in. Uh, so on, uh, I was on stage and went through the, the PowerPoint, which I certainly spent a lot of time preparing and it was very well received. In fact, uh, the, the only real questions I had, which was really not the intention of my paper, was because I, this paper did not address evidence. I was only talking about plausibility, technically and culturally, and the results of the experiment. But everybody wanted to know, where's the evidence? Because I think I, think I got past the technical plausibility and experiment. It was, it was, it was well accepted that was not essentially in doubt in, in, in from the audience at all. Uh, of course, I told them that, you know, I wasn't at, at that point looking at the, looking for the evidence. That's since then, that's what I've been involved in. And also, uh, as I mentioned, uh, doing these rope experiments. So yes, it, it was, it was very well accepted. And then from that paper that I delivered at Oxford, only a few papers were selected for publication in Exart's hard copy journal. And it was selected and I rewrote that paper for the article, which was peer reviewed and was published later in 2014. Uh, again, pretty pleased with that. And so my initial goal was accomplished, was which was 
like any uh, sort of grad student, if you will, or ever, it was to get published. I wanted that stake in the ground with uh, my name on it so that people uh, can associate that. But uh, yes, yeah, so it went very well. And, and from that opportunity, I had time to go down to the British Museum and look at uh, rope samples in depth, alpha grass rope from the Old Kingdom, which uh, clearly shows they, although they did a great job of making that rope, which what they had at hand, which was man-made, certainly not machine-made, but you one can see that the rope is relatively fragile and likely not nearly as strong as modern-day manila rope. Right. Um, again, so, a reason for the pulley. And they also, in the uh, British Museum, were the finished stones, which again shows that uh, those stones could have been used uh, to slide uh, the other stones right up the side of it. So since then, you talked about trying to find evidence, and, and I think most people will say it's likely we will never know uh, for sure, but they continue to, to look for the evidence. Uh, what have you been up to in the last three years? Uh, I started very basically, and that is to show, again, of course I knew and had already shown that the Egyptians were very good at capable of making things that look like an e Egyptian pulley. I wanted to try to find something uh, that was uh, direct evidence. Uh, I think one archaeologist notes in general, if you don't know what you're looking for, you're not going to find it. I, I right. think, I thought it was possible that the elements of an Egyptian pulley, which are very mundane objects, such as a simple cradle would be mistaken for say an archaeological fe feature and the cylinder itself with the groove looks like possibly just a section of a column. So I think it was, I still think it's possible these are, have been easily overlooked. But so, but my initial uh, look was to show that indeed the Old Kingdom Egyptians fully knew how and actually made cylinders, not for Egyptian pulleys, but could make a cylinder with, with grooves in it and cradles. But also in uh, research, and this was mostly on the internet, showed that a French archaeologist in the 1930s found, I think I described it earlier, a rope roll, a wooden rope roll at the Step Pyramid, which predates the Great Pyramid by about 100 years. This clearly uh, is a what I would call the design for an Egyptian pulley. It, it, it doesn't have the cradle, but it's a roller with a rope groove. And a rope groove really is a critical element here. So I was pleased with that. But again, as I mentioned earlier, that the, so far the, the really good evidence is in the Great Pyramid itself in right. uh, the, the tomb robbing mechanism. You can see there are six cradles in there that support cylindrical rolling logs. Now the ropes were slung across these simple beams formed by the low rolling logs, and I can't say that they had a rope group, but essentially those are one little step away from Egyptian pulley. There's a, there's a cradle, a, they were made of limestone, there would be a, a wood roller, and then uh, for all intents and purposes, it's clear that they, to me, would have understood would have understood an Egyptian pulley because that tomb robbing mechanism is really more complicated, and it's actually a pulley system. They used that to obtain a two to one mechanical advantage, so they fully understood pulley systems. There, there's, there's, I mean, I'm not the only one that makes that contention. Uh, Dr. Mark Lehner, who is essentially the 
expert on the Great Pyramid uh, makes that all the time. So it's fully a given that that's, that system was a pulley system to develop a two-to-one mechanical advantage. But in essence, there are six Egyptian pulleys in there, I contend, or at least the elements of it. Uh-huh. Now, I want to keep looking. As I said, I think that there may be, uh, may have been overlooked, but I think the after 4,500 years, it's possible that no evidence will ever be found, particularly since the, I think they did an intentional job, intentionally tried to keep how it was done secret. But if you look at this from a plausibility standpoint, it's pretty clear to me, number one, they needed a, a, a pulley very badly. This, system, this pulley could have easily been fabricated, would have been robust, I proved it would work. And if you look at the tomb robbing mechanism there, it has you know, the, it has the elements there of the Egyptian pulley. So how often do you go to the Great Pyramid? I've been there no, no, I've been there no times, but my intention <laughs> is to go uh, next year because Cairo is now opening a new Cairo museum. I don't know if you know about that, but it's going to be fantastic. And I'm hopeful, the other thing I'm hopeful of, I think, I don't know, and I can't say they have or have not, but I think they probably could do a better job of archiving their artifacts. So I'm hoping that in their artifacts collection, there would be uh, such things as uh, roofs, uh, cylinders. I, I know that they do have rather mundane objects in there. The ones that, that are cataloged are, of course, things like mummies. But they uh, they have certainly all kinds of mundane objects there, so that would it's gonna it would be a real thrill to go through there. Now I have, as I mentioned, been through the British Museum, and and they have an extensive Egyptology section. Uh, the Petrie Museum in London also has an excellent sec, uh, sesh, uh, area on Egyptology, and they also have some the rope rolls that I described earlier. They're, they they postdate the Great Pyramid by a, a couple hundred years but they also are rope rolls. They, they show a rope groove. So it, to me, right now, I think there is substantial evidence uh, that they, they use this. They, they certainly, experts generally agree, they sorely needed one. And this is, this is about as simple as you can get. Right. So uh, if you want to read more about your uh, evidence papers, um, where, where, where can uh, folks go to to read more, I, you mentioned some videos that you've uh, published of the experiment. The easiest, the easiest way would be, I have a website, www.egyptianpulley.com. There's questions and answers and links on there. If you wanna see the, the full scale lift, if you go to YouTube and, 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 and put in Egyptian pulley, you'll probably find that as the first or second uh, item that pops up and, you, and you'll see a, like a 12 second clip there. Uh, also, um, XART Journal, which I mentioned, has published that original paper. If one goes to the XART.net and searches for that paper, which was at their seventh conference in January 2014, that's now available uh, in full text. Also, I have a link on that EgyptianPolite.com for both the YouTube video and also uh, that article. And uh, also, I would mention that if people have questions uh, on the EgyptianPulley.com site, there is uh, uh, my email on there. I think it's steve at EgyptianPulley.com if they want to have any questions or anything. Well, this has been very fascinating. I think we could probably talk for another hour. (laughs) And I know know you, we can certainly feel the enthusiasm that you have for the project and and the years that you put in. But thank you for sharing 
with us today. Thanks. I, I always love to talk about it. Okay. Steve Blakely, uh, 1969 graduate of the University of Illinois and uh, the Egyptian pulley, and we appreciate uh, him taking time um, to discuss that with us. This has been another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our corpse of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.